Well, we are continuing in the book of Acts, and um, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and verses 22 through 36 is going to be our text this morning. So let's stand together. I will read it, and then we will see what the Lord has for us, all right? Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 36. This is Peter speaking. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Lord, would you now fill us with the truth of your revelation, this Pentecost revelation. And Lord, may we see it in all its wonder and beauty and glory. And Lord, what we, what we are not, would you make us? What we know not, Lord, would you teach us? Lord, what we have not, would you give us? And Lord, allow me simply to be the means by which you are glorified through the preaching of your word. We need your help today. Lord, sear these truths to our heart, we pray in your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The most essential and foundational belief and claim in Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. 
We can disagree on a number of things. We can disagree on the nature and the form of baptism. We can disagree on points of eschatology or what's going to happen you know, in those last days when the Lord returns. We can disagree on the, the true form of church government, but the one thing we cannot disagree on is the person and work of Christ. It is the death, the burial, and the resurrection that distinguishes the true church from other forms of religion, even forms of religion that, that are under the umbrella, the broad umbrella of what the world sees as Christianity. Other religions might see Jesus as a good person or even a, a, a helpful prophet who said some good things, but they deny the facts of his resurrection as well as his deity. And even under the broad umbrella of Christianity, there are liberal denominations. I do not mean that politically. I mean that theologically. They're modern movements. They deny that God's word is authoritative and can be trusted. They do not hold that these recorded events that we are studying today are actual. But... The true church holds to the reality that Jesus rose from the tomb bodily on the third day. Friends, that is essential to who we are as a church. That is essential to our Christianity. That's why we have a day once a year set aside to focus on the resurrection. And not only that, not only did he rise from the tomb, but he appeared to many witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul lists a whole bunch of them. And so what happens here is that he's demonstrating, Paul is demonstrating that he, Christ, is truly the promised Messiah. And therefore, it is no wonder that here, Peter's first public sermon on the day of Pentecost, is going to have its central focus not on the Holy Spirit, not even on the church, but on Christ. See, we think about Pentecost as the the time when the Holy Spirit comes, and he does, but we will see in this passage a little bit later that it is Jesus who actually initiates the sending of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. This passage, the message of Pentecost is all about Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit never wants to be central, but peripheral. He he always wants to shine a light on the Son of God. Now, this morning, as our proposition, I just want to emphasize this basic truth, that the central message of Pentecost is Jesus Christ. Of Nazareth. In other words, the reason that the Holy Spirit is poured out through the sign and wonder of tongues is to present Jesus of Nazareth as both Lord and Christ. Now we're jumping into the middle of Peter's sermon, which is always kind of an awkward thing to do. And if you remember last week, we talked about Peter who's answering the, the, the meaning of Pentecost, and he goes to Joel 2, if you remember, and he says, look, 
what Joel prophesied is what's happening now. The tongues that you're hearing and the fact that you're hearing them in your own language is a fulfillment of what Joel prophesied. God's revealing himself through these tongues to the nations. But now he's going to focus in on the actual message that is being revealed. And he's going to elaborate. He's going to explain it. He's going to clarify it. So Peter now continues to preach to this crowd of Jews that are gathered from all different towns and cities and places, not only in Jerusalem, but around the Mediterranean because of the diaspora that took place where Jews were were relocated. And they come back now as pilgrims periodically to Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were speaking with an unbelieving friend and had to summarize in 15 words or so the heart of the Christian gospel, what would you say? Maybe you'd say something like this. Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. It's a true statement. It's a good statement. Or maybe you'd say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's a good statement. It's a true statement. Or everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, good statement, true statement. Well, in in verses 22 through 36, Peter will walk his Jewish audience through four aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at each stage, he's going to press home their need to consider what he's saying. We just look at the introduction here, and it's just a couple, just a few words here. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Now, this is in the middle of his sermon. If you remember a little while back, as he begins the sermon, he, he, he says something very similar, right? And he's basically connecting with them, being respectful with them, but he's also establishing his authority. Men of Israel, hear these words. Listen to me. What I have to say is important. You've asked a question. I'm answering it. So pay attention. I want to show you the beauty of what has been prophesied in the Old Testament and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as sermons go, this is a great one. We won't get into all the details here, but it is authoritative. It is simple and clear. It is biblical. It is logical. It is confrontational, and it is compelling. So let's jump into the first aspect that he identifies here, and I'm going to say this is the incarnation. You know it. As Peter continues his sermon, now he ties the preaching of the gospel to a particular historical figure, the man Jesus of Nazareth from the first century ID. So, so this is not just Jesus. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He's being specific. He's being clear. This is a man they are aware of. And how come they're aware of him? Because he caused a lot of stir in Judea. So much so that those in Jerusalem gathered together at a point and said, crucify him. And when he entered Jerusalem a week earlier, they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, who is this person? And it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's just from a a regular town, but this is Jesus of Nazareth. We're not here dealing with a man-made philosophy or a man-made ideology. 
which are somehow divorced from the hard facts and historical realities of life on earth. This is not Plato. This is not Aristotle. This is not Kant. It's not myth. It's not make-believe as so many today, uh, the, the religions of today are. But this is a gospel that is rooted in the person and work of Jesus. And as Peter begins this sermon, he makes two distinctions. First of all, Jesus is a man. He is a man. Jesus of Nazareth, a man. Let's just pause there. He was born in Bethlehem with some special attention from the shepherds. And then as a toddler, the wise men came and giving him gifts because they saw the star in the east and they they come and they celebrate. But we're told here after that that Jesus goes to Nazareth. And it's not like, hey, cool, we get to go to Nazareth. I mean, Nazareth is like a a no-name town. It's out in the sticks. Right? This isn't Jerusalem. This is Nazareth. This is like, this is not San Francisco. This is like Rio Vista. This is Lodi, right? It's Escalon. It, you know, who important comes from those places? No one really important comes from those places. No one really important comes from Nazareth. That's the point here. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He was part of a family with a father and mother and had brothers. He was a day Labor. We often think of Jesus as a carpenter, and sometimes in our minds we can, we can kind of be elitist in that. He was a day laborer that worked with his hands. Hard work. He had a human body, hungered and thirst, felt pain, got tired and slept at night. Isaiah tells us very interestingly, Isaiah 53, he has no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, if you saw Jesus as a child playing with the other children, you would not look at him and say, aha, look at that glow, look at the halo. No, he would just look like a a normal child. You wouldn't know that he is the son of God. He had emotions and obligations to fulfill. He laughed, he cried, he cooked, he washed, he combed his hair. He did all the things young men of his day were expected to do. He attended synagogue. He was a student of the word. Jesus is a real man who was really born. And he's a real historical figure who had real parents and who built real things with his real hands. He was really and fully a man. Secondly, Jesus is no Ordinary man. Notice what it says next. There's something special about Jesus of Nazareth that God would begin to make clear. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He was attested to you by God. That literally, you know, the idea of attested, he's a man designated, appointed, authenticated by God to you. Put it this way. He, God has appointed this Jesus to be, to, to, to take a given office with a divine mission. And that appointment is authenticated by three evidences that took place in their midst. Mighty works, wonders, and signs. 
Now, all three of those words are describing Jesus's ministry over the course of three and a half years. Right? He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000 plus in the wilderness. He healed a blind man, a withered hand, a paralytic. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He calmed a raging storm. That's just a few of lots of things that Jesus did. In fact, it was that John says, I could not contain all the wonders that Jesus did in a volume. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 12, we're not going to read it, but there we're told that the crowds chased after him. And just imagine the picture. Here's Jesus, and he's in a boat, and he gets off the boat, and he comes into a town, and crowds come flocking to him because they know he can cast out demons. He can heal people who are diseased. And that comes, and Jesus does that, and then he preaches, and then he gets in the boat, and he continues on. Guess what happens? The crowds, they don't have a boat. They're running around the lake because they know he's going to another town. And then he gets there, and the crowds are even larger now. So this is all that's happening. All this is affirmation, is authentication, that Jesus is no ordinary man. He's attested to them by God. And then he says, you yourselves know this. In other words, this isn't a surprise to the audience that he's speaking to, to these Jews. God has shown clearly to them by the miracles, by the wonders and the signs that he was working through Jesus. He had become publicly known by all who were listening to Peter on that day. These mighty works, wonders and signs were not stories about a person they heard about. For example, Well, my friend told me about my uncle who has a sister whose boyfriend happened to be in a location where he thinks that he saw someone performing a miracle. No, that's not what's going on here. These people saw this. They had family members were affected by this. They know what Peter is saying is true. The crowds knew it. That's why they chased him all over Galilee. The religious leaders knew it. They came to investigate. They came to confront. They had to come up with some trumped up charges of blasphemy because they saw what Jesus was doing and the crowds were coming to him when they were listening to him. And of course, he was poking holes in the whole religious establishment. They know exactly what Jesus was doing. So Paul's saying here, So so what Peter's saying, I should say, Peter, in just a few words, has established that Jesus was a real man and a historical figure known to his audience, right? His incarnation, he came as a man. Second, not only is there his incarnation that he talks about here, but he continues on now in verse 23 to talk about his crucifixion. And he's going to emphasize here, you are responsible for his crucifixion. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan of foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
Now we have two perspectives in this verse that, that really find their first occasion in this book of Acts. This is the first time in the book of Acts that we are introduced to the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. So there's two perspectives. First of all, there's God's perspective. Let's, let's just read it again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now just let this sink in. The crucifixion of Jesus was part of the def- definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's purpose. It was his plan conceived before the foundation of the world. Jesus would come as a man to be a sacrifice once for all. It wasn't a mistake. The crucifixion was not plan B. It wasn't an afterthought or an adjustment on God's part because of what happened to Jesus. No, God knew beforehand, before the creation of the world, that the Son of God would come into the world in the form of a baby. He would grow to be a man. He would spend three years performing miracles and signs and wonders. He would set his face toward Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to suffer, that he was going to be beaten and mocked and ultimately crucified. Jesus knew that the scriptures had to be fulfilled and that they demanded that the Christ must suffer and die on the cross for the sins of the world. Friends, the death of Jesus wasn't a dreadful accident. God wasn't standing on the sidelines, wringing his hands, wondering what he was going to do. No, this was all part of his definite plan. God was not surprised or panicked. God, in his sovereignty, was carrying out his plan without flaw. This is the divine perspective. And then you have the the human perspective or man's perspective. You have to admire Peter's courage here. Again, looking things in context. Fifty days earlier, this same crowd was standing a few hundred yards away, crying, crucify him, crucify him, baying for the blood of Jesus. But now Peter stands up to speak and boldly confronts them for their guilt and for their responsibility for the death of Jesus. So looking at things from man's perspective, Peter isn't, pulling any punches. He has no intention of somehow lightening the guilt of his audience, but he wants to show them how the promised Messiah could be put to death. Now remember, the Jews were not expecting their Messiah to come and to die. They are expecting this Messiah to come and overthrow They had a completely distorted but politicized view of the Messiah. So, here's what happens. He says, you crucified and killed him. That's specifically a charge addressed to the Jews. They're responsible. You're responsible. You did it. But they're not the only ones who are responsible. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. In other words, it wasn't just you Jews. You used 
And the Romans embraced Jesus' killing, his murder on the cross. The point that Peter is making, and the point that is helpful for us, is that it was not just Jews and Gentiles, but those Jews and Gentiles represent humanity. Humanity was guilty of putting Jesus on that cross, of killing him, of murdering him. Now, this is not the kind of sermon that would go over well in many of today's churches, churches that don't want to talk about judgment. So we don't want to you know, push people away or, or talk about people's sin or their own personal responsibility before God. But remember, Peter had already been talking about the day of the Lord, right? There's a day coming. It's a day of judgment. It's a day of joy, just depending on what side of the judgment you're on. So God is sovereign in ordaining the death of Christ, but humanity is responsible. And the point that Peter is making is that man's wickedness in crucifying the Messiah could not thwart God's sovereign purposes. Man's sinfulness is always being fleshed out in a manner consistent with God's sovereignty. Just try and wrap your mind around that. You and I sin. And even with our sinfulness, he is accomplishing his purposes and he is bringing glory to himself. It's amazing, isn't it? So there's two, just two quick applications that I think flow out of this. Number one, this verse and others like it, because there are others like this in Scripture, that reveal that God's sovereign plan, while at the same time, man's sinful freedom to act and think how he wants, this should actually comfort us. We shouldn't be fearful. It's like, well, I, I failed today. I sinned today. I, you know, I fell flat on my face. And now somehow God's purposes aren't going to work out. <laughs> no, 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 no. God is far greater than that. God's purposes will always work out. Because God is always at work accomplishing his purposes in light of his awareness and full control of our sinfulness. It's an amazing reality, isn't it? Ephesians 1.4 tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. Not only comfort, but then concern. If the Jews and Gentiles, in other words, the representation of all humanity, conspired to kill Jesus, then hear this, then I must face the sobering fact that I am a part of that humanity. I put Jesus on the cross. My sins were why he was nailed to that cross to be that sacrifice once for all. Yet, he did it willingly so that I could be forgiven. This is the amazing reality, friends, of what Christ has done. His incarnation, his crucifixion, Now we want to focus in on his resurrection. Quite frankly, the lion's share of this sermon is on this topic. He's arguing something here, but he says, I want you to to know something about his resurrection because we have seen him post-resurrection. Peter has been telling us about this incarnation and crucifixion, but now we're going to focus on this resurrection. But remember, Jesus is buried. He's been certified dead. He's been put in a tomb, 
A boulder has been placed in front of the entrance. There has been a seal, an official seal placed there. A Roman guard is placed there to make sure that no one steals the body. Yet three days later, he rose bodily from the tomb. So now Peter begins with the fact of the resurrection, and then he's going to shift over to support that fact by two proofs. Let's look at the fact in verse 24. Here's what he says. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up. Death, friends, death could not hold him. Hear this. It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. And the specific expression, loosing the pangs of death, is an expression that has the idea of birth pangs. So just like a pregnant woman going into labor where everything in her body is saying, get that baby out. This is what's happening in a sense. Now she might be saying, honey, we've got to go to the hospital now. Baby's coming. I mean, now. I don't mean go get a magazine. I mean, now. Get in the car. I don't care where we are. Just stop the car. I have to get the baby out now. And I know there's some people in this room that know exactly (laughs) what I'm talking about. So Jesus entered death. He was killed. He was murdered. He did die, but everything about the grave was compelling Jesus to be released from death and to be raised up. He had to rise up. In that sense, Jesus could not be held by death. He died, but three days later he rose again. The point is that it was impossible for Jesus to remain dead. He did die. He did actually die. But unlike everyone else, he could not remain dead. You know, that's not a thought that we think of when we lay our loved ones in the grave, is it? I wonder how long he's going to remain dead. No, for us, it's a certainty. For Christ, death couldn't hold him. (laughs) Could not hold him. It was impossible. That's the fact of the resurrection. Now he comes at it with two proofs of the resurrection to support his claim that Jesus rose from the tomb. First of all, a prophetic proof, and then the next one is an eyewitness proof. Verses 25 through 31, here's the argument. Peter turns to scriptures, in particular the psalm, Psalm 16, to show that it was impossible for Jesus to remain in the grave. And he quotes one of the key Old Testament figures, King David. And we must remember that, that God had promised already in the Old Testament, promised King David a kingdom that would, would be ruled forever. And it was to be a kingdom ruled by God's everlasting king. God wasn't saying to the dead, well, your, your, your son is going to rule, and then your son's son, your grandson is going to rule. No, he was saying that, that, that there was going to be a ruler. One of your descendants was going to be a consistent ruler of this kingdom. And that king would, be, would govern universally. 
all people through all eternity. So we read there in verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will uh, will dwell in hope. But here's the key part. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is not the same thing as hell. It is the abode of the dead. And he says, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. Now, Jesus could not be left in Hades. He cannot remain in the grave. There would be no no maggots over Jesus' body. No worms crawling through his eyes and all that kind of stuff that you see when you watch these shows on TV. None of that would happen to Jesus. Why? Because his body would not see corruption. And to be sure that we understand that this prophecy is not about King David, Peter continues and says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. You have to understand where Peter's going here. He's saying, I'm quoting David. But you have to understand, David is not talking about David. He's talking about someone else. Now, since David was Israel's great king, you can be sure that those Jews who are making their pilgrimage to Jerusalem that part of their pilgrimage there, part of their time there, likely and probably repeatedly, was that they would go out of their way once or twice to visit David's tomb and show respect. I mean, he's one of the key leaders of Israel. If this were happening today in our country, there would be a parking lot full of yellow school buses and kids holding on to ropes with a, a tour guide in front of them and someone saying, well, this is King David. Let me tell you about King David's life and blah, 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 blah. I mean, this is what's going on. Historians would be there. People who were curious would be there. Pilgrims would be there. And the point is, this clearly is not David. David died. David is buried. And you can still go to his tomb today. But this prophecy of Psalm 16 has something to do with one of his descendants. So we move from this prophetic idea and we continue on in verse 30 where he says, being therefore a prophet. So as David had something to say and what he was saying was not about himself, but he was speaking prophetically and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see what he's doing? He's pointing through David to his descendant. So this is not about David. This is about one of his descendants. Now, in more recent years, people have been curious about where they have come from. And more recently, you probably have noticed, maybe some of you have done it, you've done the DNA test with Ancestry.com, and you can kind of figure out where you come from, and you can say, well, you know, you find out you're part Polish and German, and then, I don't know, Samoan or something like that. And you're like, where in the world did the Samoan kick in? And you're like, okay, but my DNA shows that somehow there was migration, and they can tell you all these different things. And before long, if you were an axe murderer and you hadn't been caught, they would find out who you are, because now you have the DNA, and 
you're stuck, right? I mean, there's some different real reasons behind it. But the point is, people are always interested about where they come from, right? But what's happening here, this isn't so much about where Jesus comes from, although that certainly is in Scripture, right? This is about the descendant of David. It's one thing to trace your ancestry back a few hundred years to see where your people come from. It's another thing to trace your descendants hundreds of years into the future and to identify that one of them would one day be a king. Most of the people that go on Ancestry.com, they're not looking to see if their ancestors were living in huts by some lake. They want to know if they're connected to a king or a queen or someone who's royal or maybe a some cousin that has lots of money that somehow they can benefit from. So friends, it's different to to look down the path. I'm I'm thinking about starting a new website called descendants.com and I can tell people who their descendants are going to be and hopefully that'll stir up some money. Obviously I'm being facetious here, right? Because you can't do that. Unless you're God, prophetically speaking about David and his future descendant, who is Christ. And that's what Peter is saying. David understood that it was one of his descendants. And now he's saying this descendant is the Christ. He's not saying Jesus at this point. He's saying he's the Messiah. And this Messiah would not abandon Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So that's the prophetical proof. Secondly, there's eyewitness proof. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You get that? We're witnesses. He's talking about we who have been here, who have been the means by which God has revealed his mighty works. Those of us who have been speaking in tongues and you're hearing in your own language, we are witnesses of his resurrection. That doesn't mean witnesses of the actual resurrection. It means witnesses of the fact that they've seen Christ who truly was dead post-resurrection. They saw him. They met with him. They touched him. They listened to his teaching. He, they fellowship with him. It's interesting at the end of John's gospel, isn't it, that we find Peter um, gathered with Jesus and a couple of other disciples out just you know, next to a lake making breakfast together. <laughs> Peter's experienced this himself. But he's using that to say, look, this is verification that what I am saying is true. He is risen, and we've seen him. So his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, now his exaltation, verses 33 through 36. Now the question is, if Christ was raised from the dead, where is he now? What happened to him? And verse 33 now is the link between the events of Pentecost and the works of of Christ. And what we find is, first of all, Peter's saying is, is that this Jesus is the ascended Lord. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now, just, just carefully walk through here. This might 
open your eyes to some of the events that have taken place at Pentecost. Jesus then is exalted to the right hand of God, right? It's another way of saying that he is Lord. And we're told here that Jesus receives the promise of the Father in that location. Next, we're told that Jesus pours out this Holy Spirit, this <laughs> that you yourselves are seeing in here. Jesus is the one that is releasing the Holy Spirit to come. Now, friends, just, I just want you to see that. This is not somehow, you know, Jesus is gone and he's resurrected and all kinds of new kind of thing. And now comes in the Holy Spirit and this is all about the Holy Spirit. No, who's still pulling the strings of what's happening on earth? Who's the one that's behind it? Who's the one that's orchestrating it from the throne of God? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He is the ascended Lord. And Peter brings his hearers around full circle to the phenomenon that they had experienced at Pentecost. And to the question, what does this mean? It means that the one that you crucified, that is resurrected, is now exalted. And he has been the one who's poured out the Holy Spirit at you now. Have heard through these tongues in your own language that are testifying about the good news of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then he goes on. This, this is Jesus is the, ascended, is the ascended Lord. David, King David, is not the ascended Lord, right? He's going to refine what he's saying. He's going to make sure that he's going to reinforce the fact that, that, that uh, David is dead. This cannot be David because he's dead and he's buried. So it, it can only be Jesus. And that's what we have in verse 34. For David did not ascend into the heavens... But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is a quote from Psalm 110, verse 1. This is the most quoted or referred to Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. It occurs between 25 or 30 so times, because some of them are, are nuances or shortened little phrases. It's quoted or referred to so much because we the, the, the writers want us to know, first of all, that this first word, Lord, is actually capital L-O-R-D, referring to Yahweh. If you go back to Psalm 110, you'll see this. The second word is Adonai. So the first word is, is Yahweh, which is God's, or the great God of Israel. In the Old Testament, when they, when they think about God, they think about God as Yahweh. And the word Adonai is a word that means an individual greater than the speaker. Now you gotta think about this. Who's speaking? David. Who is David? The king of Israel. <laughs> Who is greater than David? His descendant, the Christ. Okay, so, he, so David logically is saying, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In other words, come and join me on the throne. And then he says, until I make your enemies your footstool. That's an incredible picture, isn't it? I mean, just, 
Just think about what that picture reveals. I thought about really two things that this points to. First of all, sovereign relaxation. What's the purpose of a footstool? How many of you here have a footstool at your house? I mean, is it just there for decoration? How many of you have a recliner in your home? Right? Yeah. I mean, so it's just it's a picture here of, of Jesus sitting in the throne room of God, pulling on the lever of his sovereignty, lifting up the footstool of his enemies, and going, ah, it's a good day for a divine snooze, isn't it? In other words, the enemies of God have no power or effect on him. They are just part of his divine relaxation. Friends, just get this. God is never shaking on his throne. Enemies might come and shake their fists. As we heard, the gates of hell might come. God is on his divine recliner. Relaxing, resting, fully and completely in control. Now, friends, we need that. Secondly, we also see sovereign humiliation because the picture of someone's foot being on a king of a nation is a picture of abject submission and humiliation. So as the exalted king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus was exalted by the right hand of the father in order to sit at his right hand, the place of supreme power and authority. And see, Peter is arguing all of this, his incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation to get to his conclusion. And we find that in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know, you that are from Judea and you are from Jerusalem, wherever you may be from across the Mediterranean, you're gathered here. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain. I mean, this is is not like, well, it's possible. No, this is for certain. Know this for certain, that God has made him both Lord and, And Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You may have crucified him. You may have been part of the crowd that was saying, crucify him, crucify him. You may have been the ones that walked by uh, the cross on that day, wagging your head and mocking and scorning, saying, if you really are the son of God, then, then, you know, take yourself down from here. That may have been you. Jesus, whom you crucified. He is both Lord and Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And this Jesus is equal with God. Because he's sitting on the throne with him. And friends, if you want to boil down the essence of the gospel, the Christian gospel, it's found in this verse, and it's simply this. Jesus Christ is Lord. This Jesus of Nazareth, 
from the podunk town of Nazareth. Just a day laborer. I have attested to you through mighty works and signs and miracles. But you crucified him. But he rose again. And he is exalted. And from the throne of God, he is activating the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that his gospel will be proclaimed throughout the earth. It's powerful stuff, isn't it? But friends, this is the heart of the Christian witness. This is the heart of what Jesus has come to do. Now, I want to just step back a little bit here as, as we conclude and just come at it with, first of all, a, a summary reflection from this text. But I want to change some words around. Jesus, this Jesus is the man displayed as approved by God. This Jesus is the lamb delivered up by God's plan and foreknowledge. Jesus is the sacrifice crucified and killed by us. This Jesus is the Messiah raised by God. This Jesus is the king seated on his throne. And just to wrap it all together, this Jesus is Lord over all. Wouldn't you have loved to hear this sermon? Certainly, Peter isn't giving us all of it, but he's giving us the essential bits of it. So here we have Christ, 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 Christ. You ask, what does this mean? Jesus Christ is Lord. And what are they saying? Jesus Christ is Lord. And from that, a summary application. Since Jesus Christ is both Lord, or Jesus is both Lord and Christ, then all who call upon the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, shall be saved. See, he's, he's transitioning. We touched on this last week. He's transitioning from Joel's prophecy, that last verse that he quotes there. And he's saying, if Jesus is Lord, then let's put him into the statement, all who call upon the name of the Lord, all who call upon the name of Jesus, yes, Jesus of Nazareth, shall be saved. That's his argument. That's where he's going. That's what he's wanting them to see. And all is all humanity. All who've rejected Christ, all who have put him to death, all who now repent, call on Jesus, shall be saved. Friends, this is grace. This is undeserved kindness and love from God. This is glorious forgiveness. Now, in light of all that we've mined here this morning, I want to go to maybe one or two passages of Scripture, and I want you to hear 
the nuances from Peter's sermon in the text that we're about to read. Turn, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. You know this text, I'm sure. But just with this kind of backdrop, just hear it again. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is the audience he's speaking to. And I realize this is Ephesians. He's speaking to a different audience. It's a Hellenistic audience. But these things are true of the Jews also. Look at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just hear that language. God isn't saying, well, man, you just made it into heaven. And we got like a, we left the light on at Motel 6 for you, okay. No, we have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have been elevated. Now, we're not gods. That's not the point. But we are sons. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man, what a... What a picture that would be. He's going to say, let me show you what I did for you here. Let me show you what I did for you here. Let me show you what I did for you here. And I did this all through Christ for you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. Hear this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared when? beforehand, that we should walk in them. God raised Jesus up, and his promise to us is that he will raise us up, and he will seat us, he will exalt us, not because of anything good in us, get that, it's because we're in Christ. Now turn your Bibles back to Matthew chapter 16. This is where we began this morning. I was really intrigued as Albert read and just thought to myself, man, isn't it incredible how the word of God is so connected? Verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I mean, just think what it took for Peter to get from that statement, which, by the way, he didn't quite fully comprehend and believe and understand at that point in time. That's why he rebukes him just a few verses later, right? And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And now on the day of Pentecost, how is it that people are hearing the good news of Christ? Well, God is using flesh and blood, but it's not flesh and blood that really is doing the revealing. It's the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit, that's coming down and being the the agent that is being used to proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, friends, this is an incredible, incredible sermon. The incarnation of Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his exaltation. This Jesus of Nazareth is Christ our Lord. You can be certain of it. Lord, help us today. We are amazed that you would think of us. Because, Lord, we are nothing. <laughs> Certainly we are part of your creation, but, Lord, we are so insignificant compared to you. And when we, when we hear this language in Scripture describing what it means that you would raise us up. That you would sit us with Jesus in the heavenly places. Lord, even as we, we think about Ephesians 1, Lord, all those blessings that come because we have this inheritance as your sons. This is staggering. This is amazing. And yet you have condescended to us. You've reconciled us. You brought us into your family through your son, Jesus Christ. What an amazing reality that is. Lord, today, if there's someone that is under the the hearing of what we have proclaimed together, who does not know you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I Plead with you, Lord, draw them to yourself. Give them, Lord, repentance. Lord, allow them to see the majesty and the beauty of your gospel. Forgive them. Reconcile them. Lord, would you be glorified with your preach word today? And would you be glorified by our hearts as we are invigorated, strengthened, Made confident, Lord, in what it means to call you our Lord and our Christ. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.